Before the Show podcast from MILB.com. I could hear every uh, like broadcasting professor that I have that I had cringe at that start. I not only like yelled into the microphone to start, uh, the first thing you're not supposed to do, then I talked unbelievably fast. It's almost as though uh, I have not been doing this for six years now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so don't adjust your your podcatchers at home. You, you did not accidentally go up to. Yeah, you didn't. You're not listening on one and a half times speed. I'm just or uh, double volume or anything like that. A bunch of coffee or something. Yeah. Um. But hey, what's uh what's up? I, I'm Tyler Mon. He's Sam Dykstra. How are you? Do you feel like I should go slower just to recalibrate here? Just yeah. to you, you know to give us another out. right a new level perhaps. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, I actually, we, full disclosure, pulling the curtain back, giving you a look behind the scenes. We've recorded everything else for the show already today, and it is going to be a fantastic show. I'm very excited for you to all listen. Uh, but as Sam was redialing me to record this last uh, segment, which is the first segment, what? Um, I was watching a tweet from at Royals, the Kansas City Royals, um, in which their head groundskeeper... Trevor Vance shares the secret to striping their field. And uh, the the reason I'm so interested in that is I attempted to mow my lawn in like a circular pattern last week, and it was a comical failure. I mean, you have a lawn, so, you know, I'm I'm jealous that you get to practice your art on That's your true. greenery. That's true. I don't, I don't care how it comes out. The fact that you get to have a normal Saturday afternoon or whenever you did it uh, – it, you know, is is something I am jealous of, no matter what you do. But it's pretty uh, nice, I will say. Uh, yeah. But I also do not have like a, a giant, um, you know, like a field level mower with a roller in the back, which is how I believe they get the the stripes. But I was 37 seconds into the video, and then you called. So now, when we hang up, I get to like have the thrilling conclusion of it. This is like <laughs> waiting on the end of a 1950s mystery show. You thought it was stripes, but it was really checkerboards all along. Right, is yeah, it, exactly, what, some, something like that. Yeah. Plot twist, weep. Um, so, hey, we're going to kick things off on this week's episode of the show. we got a lot coming up. Uh, speaking of the Royals, how about that for a segue? The uh, left-handed pitching prospect Chris Bubich will join us from that organization coming up here in just a little bit. Really good to get a chance to talk uh, with Chris, who's back home in California right now, uh, waiting a, uh, a hopeful start to baseball season sometime in the, the not-super-distant future. Um, then we'll hear from Benjamin Hill. We'll hear from Jordan Wolf, who makes his podcast debut coming up in a little bit. One of our writers at MILB.com who's got a, a great story uh, up on the site right now about a guy from the 1920s who you probably have never heard of, but a really interesting story. And um, we, Sam and I, are set for uh, yet another showdown on MLB The Show 20 coming up uh, at the, the start of next week. We're going to do our third game. And just so everyone is aware, the results of the first two games have gone how, Sam? Again, my silence is going to say more than my words ever could, so you're just going to have to deal with that. Oh, man, it's it's just so good to be undefeated. I should not talk uh, that much gloatingly at all, though. Our guest in a little bit, Chris Bubich, he and his team in the Carolina League playoffs last year were down 2-0 in a best-of-five series and came back to sweep the next three and knock out Salem in the Carolina League semifinals. That's what we call uh, a harbinger. Uh, we discussed that with him, and now Sam undoubtedly will go on some huge run because I'm gloating while being up 2-0. Yeah, I don't know if you ever knew this, but it's been a best of five all along. We've just <laughs> been building to this. I have a feeling if I do pull out a third straight win, 
I think you'll I think you're gonna change your tune on that. I mean, best of sevens are great, <laughs> are they not? The World Series. Best of best nine. Of we've never. Yeah, you know, that's true. Best of nine. They used to be uh, the World Series used to be nine games. The PCL back in the day, uh, I was listening to a, a fantastic. We don't often plug other podcasts uh, on the show, but if you have never listened to Life Around the Seams, which is the podcast hosted by Albuquerque Isotopes radio voice Josh Sushan, who is uh, one of my good buddies in the game, Josh and Ted Haggerty, the outstanding radio guy for the El Paso Chihuahuas, they had an episode probably a month or six weeks ago now, uh, where they went through just some of the weirdest and wildest baseball stories they could find. And one of them, I think it was Josh, was telling the story about a PCL championship series back in like the 19-teens that was like a best of 21 or something insane, like something that would never fly. outside, And that was already on top of playing like a 190-game season, you know? Um, it was a different. It was a different era. Maybe we'll get to that stage, though. That'll be me and you <laughs> battling it out in uh, in eight months worth of games. Yeah, our Christmas special, the best of twenty one, will just be <laughs> utterly fantastic. It's gonna be fun. Uh, so we do have a uh, a third game coming up for you, and uh, we've gone through a, a couple of different formats already for our first uh, two games. The first one was just drafting teams of top prospects. Second one was uh, an old school futures game format, U.S. teams against the world. Uh, this time around, we're going with American League versus National League. We've got some uh, some quirkier format ideas that we're going to be diving into beyond this but we figured we should probably do an al versus nl kind of all-star game style one uh we got some great suggestions sent in for game ideas dennis Britt was uh, among those who emailed in some ideas and had some really good uh theories of games that we should do the one that really struck me that i know you like too sam was what he called the soda pop series which is all prospects under 21 which i think would be a lot of fun to do um, but for this one we're going american league versus national league uh true to our own heritages uh, Sam's taking the AL. I'm taking the NL. And uh, well, except for the fact that I mistakenly put Josh Jung as my uh, as my uh, third baseman, and he's a Texas Rangers prospect. But uh, you know, well, what are you gonna do? He was on the podcast, and it was just a, a recent thought in my head, and I was like, oh, I should put I should put him there at third. Uh, he doesn't play in an NL system. That's not how it works. But uh, we put these rosters together today. We're going to give you our starting lineups, and I will cede the floor to winless 0-2 Sam Dykstra. How, how nice of you, Tyler. Look at you being just a gracious winner, as am, always. You know, I don't like to pat myself on the back, but every once in a while, it's uh, you, you're required to do so. <laughs> you were required. That's a heck of a way to use required. Interesting. Um, yeah, so I haven't picked what team I'm going to do yet, so I guess tune in next Tuesday. We're going to do this next Tuesday at 7 p.m. That's when we've always been doing it. It'll be on the YouTube page for Minor League Baseball. It'll also be on the podcast page, uh, milb.com slash fans slash podcast. Go find it there. Uh, we'll also have it on the Facebook page. We're going to have this all over the place. You'll be able to find it. Um, but uh, I haven't chosen what team I'm going to be, so I guess you'll find out before long when I do the sim this weekend. Uh, but I will do an American League affiliate. Don't I'm not going to cross any streams and do like I think the. I know who you're going to pick. Do you? I think so. Who Who do you think I'm going to pick? I think you're going to go Pawtucket. I thought about it. Okay. I thought about it because th- this is their last season. Um, next year there there'll be the the Worcester Red the Sox, Woo the Woo Sox, as it were. It'll be a lot of fun to play as the Woo Sox now, to be honest. Um, but I'll, I'll I think I might hold Pawtucket for another time. Okay, we'll see. We'll see how I feel. Right. But Pawtucket is definitely on the board for some time in this series. Anywho, um, here's my roster real quick. These are just the starting 
starting guys. At catcher, I have Sean Murphy, Oakland A's uh, player. I don't think he's featured in a game yet. He's definitely been on a few rosters. I don't yeah. know if he's actually started a game yet, so I wanted to make sure he's in there. He gets the call over Adley Rutschman, who's going to be my backup, who's a heck of a backup catcher, uh, but wanted to feature Sean Murphy, so he's my starting backstop. At first base, I have Evan White. I really liked what Tyler did, and I hate to say this. A couple weeks ago, when we first started this, you had Evan White as your starting first baseman. Uh, the Seattle Mariners expect him to be a major leaguer. They signed him to a major league deal this offseason. He was going to be their opening day first baseman. A lot of that is because because of his glove we saw him make a couple of really good plays in this game before uh, I want him at first base second base I have Vidal Brujan from the Tampa Bay Rays system the reason for that is I really like pairing him at shortstop with Wander Franco if I'm gonna have the AL I'm gonna have the top overall prospect in baseball no questions asked putting those two together uh, should be a lot of fun for Rays fans but also a glimpse into the future of the a- the AL in general uh Sticking in the A, at least at third base, I went with Bobby Dahlbeck. Uh, Bobby Dahlbeck, not a top 100 prospect right now necessarily. I know some sites have him at top 100. MLB.com doesn't, but he was going to contribute to the Red Sox at some point this year. He still might, uh, obviously, when baseball resumes, whenever that may be. Uh, He's typically a third baseman. He was a pitcher in college in Arizona. The arm will certainly work at third base. The Red Sox have Rafael Devers right now. He's not going to overtake him at third, so they were going to give him some time at first. I'm going to keep him at his natural position. He might have the best power of anybody we're going to feature in this game. He also might strike out more than anybody else we're going to have in this game. So it's a little bit of a bipolar pick, but that power potential is something I wanted to play into. My three outfielders are just a three-headed monster that you're rarely ever going to see except in a format like this. Joe Adele, Luis Robert, Jared Kelnick. Don't really have to explain why they're in there. If you've ever heard us talk on this podcast, you know all three are extremely toolsy. There might be 15 tools among those three players. Uh, 15-plus tools, I should say. Uh, So I want to get them in the mix. We'll see how I figure who goes where. All three could play center field. All three have experience at the corners as well. Um, So I'll see what the configuration of that is. My designated hitter, because I want him to hurt you specifically, Tyler, is Julio Rodriguez of the Seattle Mariners uh, organization. Why? Why exactly? Because last week he hurt me personally, and I just want you to know what that feels like. That's right. He had a game-winning homer in the top of the ninth with two outs. A cinematic homer. It went. It reached the bay. It was just majestic. Just a, a titanic shot. What was the if final distance on it? It was like 440 feet. Yeah, something, something like that. that. It was, uh, yeah, it hit the water outside of, uh, was that Riverfront Park on, on River, the show? I think Bayfront Park. Bayfront, yeah, that sounds right. All right. Um, it's funny how we have these very explicit memories of a game that's just virtual and doesn't matter. But Julio Rodriguez is already a legend of this series, and if I'm going to have the American League, I'm not going to let him uh, – sit on my bench or miss out on this game in some way. So he's my designated hitter. Uh, Starting pitcher is somebody who also featured in that game. He got the last out for my team was Casey Mize. Uh, Casey Mize is somebody we kept talking about the first two games of like, hey, if my starting pitcher doesn't do well, I have Casey Mize in the bullpen. And Casey Mize finally came in, got one out uh, in mop-up duty last time. I want to see more of him. I want to actually see him go six or seven innings. Uh, so I, I wanted to make sure he's going to be my starting pitcher. So that that's my lineup. There's going to be some other guys who factor into that. We're going to have a, a full bullpen of really good prospects. Uh, my bench as of right now has Jeter Downs and Royce Lewis and Brandon Marsh and Adley Rutschman, who I ever, uh, already mentioned. Um, so, you know, the, this is just the starting lineup, but uh, it should be a doozy from my side. Tyler, who do you got? 
Yeah, so I um, tried to mix in a lot of guys who I have not yet had on rosters or given starts to, that type of stuff. Um, so my uh, my starting catcher, my top catcher from the San Diego Padres organization uh, is Luis Camposano. Uh, at first base, I went with Seth Beer, one of the best names, obviously, in baseball, and a dude who can uh, can swing it and play over first. Uh, the first Rockies prospect that we have had in our three games, Brendan Rodgers, who maybe somewhat surprisingly hasn't gotten a nod on any of our rosters uh, to this point. I've got him at second base, obviously uh, hurt in real life and on the road back uh, from a rotator cuff injury, but but um, presumably would have seen time in uh, in 2020 before too long had the season not put on hold, been put on hold. Uh, third base, can't go with Josh Young. So uh, I'm going to go with Alec Baum, who uh, the, the big power potential and uh, guy who, you know, we talked to on the show, friend of the podcast, actually was a USA Baseball teammate with his third base counterpart on your roster, Bobby Dahlbeck, uh, in the Premier 12 tournament, the Olympic qualifying tournament last year in uh in Mexico and in Japan. Um, shortstop, Gavin Lux, who was your first pick in the first one of these drafts that we did. Um, so I got him at short. Uh, my designated hitter from a catching position is Joey Bart. So I'm I'm really almost carrying four catchers, and I'll tell you why in a minute, which is I'm just thinking so uh, – this is such advanced – scouting and thought sam you really just you can't even learn it sometimes it's just inborn carrying four catchers on paper. Yeah. it's totally yeah, super intelligent i think uh, you're trying way too hard <laughs> i think is what this is my outfield is uh christian pache from atlanta dylan carlson from the cardinals and christian robinson from the d-backs who was on my world team last time out uh that fourth catcher potentially uh, who I've got listed as a fourth outfielder is a dude who I have a big prospect crush on and that's Dalton Varsho uh, from the Arizona Diamondbacks organization because he's a guy who can catch but he can play the outfield he stole over 20 bases last year I've raved about him before on the show so I got Dalton Varsho there as a one of my reserves and then the kind of no-brainer starting pitcher for this team would be Mackenzie Gore but I started Mackenzie Gore in the the first matchup that we did uh on the show so I'm going with Dustin May who is a uh, likely future division opponent of Mackenzie Gore's the the Dodgers prospect Mackenzie Gore of course a, a Padres farmhand so uh Dustin May is going to get the nod on my side hopefully the game has some impressive flow for Dustin May who has some of the best hair in minor league baseball um and that's the that that's the group. One thing I, I really like about Dustin May being your starting pitcher is that he's going to have the leg kick. Yeah. Like Mackenzie Gore had the leg kick, but yeah. Dustin May, it's I saw it described the other day as Bronson Arroyo. Like I don't think it's quite that high, but just the whole package of watching Dustin May with the, the flow, with the leg kick, with his really long legs that became a meme very quickly after he made his major league debut. Uh, it's just a really fun package to watch for an hour at a time. And that's typically how long these have gone. They're about an hour, an hour and a half. Um, so yeah, if, if we're going to have some fun with this, Dustin May is one of my most fun minor league prospect pitchers to watch. So we will simulate that game. We'll record the broadcast coming up on Monday. And like Sam said, it will be anywhere and everywhere uh, on all of our various minor league baseball channels. So we got that coming up for you. And we got a lot coming up for you on the show today, including one of the top prospects in the Kansas City Royals organization, Chris Bubich, who joins the show coming up next. As an official partner of Minor League Baseball, Nationwide's here to make sure you're protected for every pitch life throws at you. Visit Nationwide.com today to see how we can help meet your needs. Nationwide is on your side. 
The sixth-ranked prospect in the Kansas City Royals organization is left-handed pitcher Chris Bubich, who joins us uh, as the calendar gets closer to June. And uh, it's a weird time for everyone, but a, a chance to be at home and hang out around familiar surroundings. Chris, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Pleasure to be on with you guys and looking forward to starting the season soon. Absolutely, man. Well, it's good to it's good to talk to you. We were uh, just talking a minute ago. You're back home in California right now, um, obviously taken uh, in the draft in 2018 out of Stanford, and now back home uh, in Cupertino. What have the last couple of months been like for you since getting back and you know trying to figure out ways to stay active during this delay? Yeah, um, it's definitely been tough. Obviously, being in California, one of the harder hit states in terms of the virus. A lot of places around me are shut down. Um, I'm in the Santa Clara County where cases were reported pretty early. And pretty often. Um, so we're still working back the reopening stuff and not quite there yet. But in terms of throwing, I've been just kind of throwing on my own with an old bag of balls um, against a local uh, uh, fence at a local park. And then in terms of bullpens, just kind of finding different places to throw that have some type of mound. Um, and if I'm able to get a catcher, it's awesome. Um, and in terms of working out and trying to stay in shape, um, I don't have any gym equipment or anything, but I've actually. I've uh, been pretty creative in my backyard working out with uh, soil bags as weights. So my mom has these gardening soil, potting soil bags that I just pick up and hold when I'm squatting or doing any type of exercise. So it's a little little old school, I guess, but um, it gets the job done. That is actually pretty awesome. That I feel like that would be uh, the a, a video shot of like a phenom prospect coming up in the 70s, like working on a ranch. That's pretty cool. <laughs> exactly, yeah. It's definitely, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Definitely a little different, but obviously times are different, so you got to adjust. <laughs> Chris, this, uh, like you said, California has been hit uh, pretty hard among uh, the states that have been so affected by uh, the the coronavirus outbreak and COVID nineteen cases and all that. In your community, uh, what has it been like? You know, it's such a different world for athletes right now, especially baseball players getting ready for a start to a season and not being there. But just as human beings right now, uh, obviously, this is not a time of year that you're even used to being home. And mm-hmm. you know, when you're when you're out or you drive around or like you said businesses trying to get open um what is it like on a day-to-day basis out there right now for you yeah so it's obviously pretty weird i'm just i'm trying to stay home as much as i can and abide by distancing guidelines as, as best we can um in terms of how my typical day goes in the morning or like the first half of the day is when i try to get all my baseball stuff done so whether that's throwing working out doing some running and conditioning and whatnot and then the second half of the day is I don't know, kind of just free to do whatever, whether that's um, – there's a lot of people in my neighborhood obviously getting out and going around for walks and getting outside a bit more. Um, for me, I, I'll do that or I'll – I'm actually uh, trying to pick up the guitar. So I actually bought a guitar um, nice. a couple couple weeks back, and I've never played an instrument before, so I'm pretty bad right now. But um, <laughs> um, obviously a good time to maybe learn a, learn a few notes or a few songs or something like that. And otherwise, just like everybody else, watching Netflix or playing MLB the show, just trying to stay busy. And I want to go to back to what you said about workouts and in terms of just throwing against a fence or if you get a catcher, that's great. But if not, it is what it is. Uh, what What is it? that juxtaposition like going from the spring when I'm sure you guys are using all sorts of technology, learning about your spin rates, learning about your velo to just going off feel these days. Uh, what has that transition been like? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's obviously a little weird because yeah, you're going from basically a hundred to 
to zero essentially. Um, but now I think it just takes you back to the basics um, because pitching at its at its core is obviously feel and um, having feel to to be around the zone and having feel for all multiple pitches. Um, so I think that's what I really emphasize: just kind of returning back to those fundamentals and those basics. Obviously, there's a little more time to. I don't want to say experiment now, but obviously I don't necessarily need to have my A stuff right now because there's no games to be played um, as of now. But it's just a, a good time to kind of check yourself, kind of reevaluate where you are or where I am as a pitcher and how my stuff is playing. Obviously, it would help to be throwing to someone every day um, to get that feedback of how your stuff's moving and if it's sharp, if it's not breaking well or whatever. Um, but I think at its core, I think it's just important to, to go back and understand that pitching is all about feel. And if you're able to have feel with pitching, then um, the rest will take care of itself. And when you are going through these kind of simpler times and getting it back to basics, what is something you have learned maybe about yourself as a pitcher uh, in these last two months since spring training was banged? Something I've learned, honestly, is that I, I mean, I think uh, multiple people can attest to this, but you don't need much, obviously, to get your work in. Um, a lot of people obviously want to go to fancy facilities or the technology is great, but in my opinion, I just use it as a tool. Like, I love talking numbers and talking analytics and all that. Um, but like I mentioned, at the end of the day, if I'm able to, to have feel and be connected with my body and, and my mechanics and how I'm pitching, then the rest will take care of itself. But I think I've just learned to, to really keep things simple. I think that's what this what this time is all about, um, to, to control what, what we can control and, and to keep things as simple as possible because there are a lot of things, obviously, that are out of our control right now, and we don't know when stuff's going to resume and when stuff's going to ever take place, but the only thing we can't control is really how we approach each day and the effort and the attitude that we have. I know it's pretty cliche, but it does go a long way. Yeah, and, and when spring training was canceled, you were in the midst of your second spring training coming off a really impressive first full season last year between Lexington and Wilmington. You ended up leading minor league baseball in strikeouts with 185 and 149 in a third innings. When you were going through those motions potentially to take the next step to double A or even maybe return to Wilmington, what was your focus in the spring uh, by mid-March You know, when, when things got canceled? I think for me, it was the continuation of the, the progress I had with my curveball. Obviously, my curveball is my third pitch, but I don't think I would have had the year I had last year without that pitch. Um, obviously, facing A-ball hitters, you can get away with some stuff that you maybe can at the upper levels. Um, but at the same time, going through college, I only had two pitches I could rely on. And then last year was really the first full year that I felt confident enough to use my my third pitch, my breaking ball, a, a decent percentage or a decent amount of times during a during a hundred pitch outing in a, in a start. Um, but I think for me, it's just the continuation of that because obviously it's as pitchers, obviously it's difficult to have your A stuff every time. Um, but for me, just finding the consistency with that pitch, just like I have with my fastball, my changeup for majority of the time, then I know that I can be a more complete pitcher and really rely on everything and every count. Chris, one of the things people talk about a lot with uh, your presence on the mound is your delivery and the deceptiveness in that delivery. And, um, you know, in the the times that I've gotten to watch it on MILB TV or, or just watching highlights and stuff, I feel like you're the guy who opposing teams, when they see you warming up for the first time, the initial thought is probably like, 
oh man, we're never going to touch this. Like when you the, from the arm angle and the way you hide the ball behind your hip uh, as you're coming, is that a natural delivery? Is that kind of how you just developed as a pitcher, or is that something that you developed with the help of coaching? I feel like guys with those really deceptive deliveries, that's just one of those other natural things that comes about in pitchers. How did that happen with you? I was definitely natural for me. Um, growing up, it's kind of funny. Growing up in the Bay Area, obviously, as a, as a Giants fan, but I watched a lot of Clayton Kershaw growing up um, just because I liked the way he pitched and liked the way he went about his business. So I know I have some similarities to Kershaw. Granted, I I would love to have the career he has. I think anybody would. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think it's definitely, definitely just natural. I was fortunate enough to not, let's say, have any coaches going through high school, going through college that really – tinkered or changed my mechanics too much um they kind of just let me be and as long as I was throwing strikes and and feeling good then they kind of just let the rest rest kind of play out so it's definitely something that's natural but I know it's definitely something that's an advantage for me um because obviously I'm not throwing 98 by guys or that nasty wipeout sliders or something like that but obviously every little advantage you can get as a pitcher really helps so I, I, I it's definitely something that's natural and um, I'm just I'm I'm actually glad I I came up throwing a a bit unique. Let's talk about your draft class a little bit. Uh, in 2018, you go as the 40th overall selection uh, in the competitive balance round A, and you were the fourth of five collegiate pitchers that the Royals took with their first five picks. They get Brady Singer and Jackson Kowar out of Florida in the, the first round, Daniel Lynch in the, in the first round out of Virginia, then you, and then Jonathan Boland from Memphis. Essentially – almost drafting a full rotation of guys coming out of the college ranks. And now you guys have gotten to work together and be at the same level so often and all that. What's it like being part of that group? It's not a a common thing that we see, um, you know, five pitchers in the first five picks would be one thing, but five college guys all coming out together and joining uh, an organization out of the same class. That's got to be pretty cool. What's the dynamic like with you guys? Yeah, it's, it's really special. I think um, obviously the Royals are pretty aggressive in drafting, drafting all of us um, in those slots. But I think um, having that experience right off the bat, because we've all pitched in big games in college and, and had a lot of innings under our belt. So I just, it made the transition to pro ball a bit easier um, because we were already durable guys that somewhat obviously knew what to expect. Obviously there's always, a, always an introduction to professional baseball, whether that's adjusting to the schedule or the travel or whatnot. But it's really special to be able to share kind of this journey because um, we're all on somewhat similar paths. Obviously, one may be at a different level than others at times, but um, we did. Uh, I think we were together briefly for like a week or two in Wilmington, and then Brady went out to Double A. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been awesome just getting to one see each and every each and every one of us go out and compete every five or six days because more often than not we're going to have really good outings, and um, it's really fun just to watch from a fan perspective. But from a from a player and, and just a friend perspective, it's fun just chat with those guys behind the scenes in the dugout in the locker rooms. Um, Brady Jackson, Daniel and I actually lived together during spring training. So it was good to obviously get to know them even better than I had the previous year. And just kind of, like I said, cause we're all on similar journeys and we're all trying to accomplish the same thing. So it's really special just to share a bond um, with all of them and be able to bounce different strategies or different ways of pitching. Cause we're all different pitchers as well. Um, so I think it's, it's crucial that we, learn a pitch or two or, or some type of mental cue from each other and I think it's it, it's been a really special dynamic so far 
Yeah, and, and in those conversations, whether as roommates or teammates or something from that first spring when you guys were all really gathered together like that, what's something specific that you picked up from Brady or Daniel or Jackson or anybody else in the Royals organization You know, in these last two years now since you've been drafted? Yeah, I think being so different, it's, it's hard to pinpoint one thing, but I'll, I'll go from each guy. So for Brady... I mean, obviously, Brady is a competitor. Um, I think a lot of people have seen that from his college days and pitching in the World Series in Omaha. But he'll go out and obviously keep his team in the game and, and, and basically pitch his tail off until someone takes the ball from him. So just having that aggressive mindset um, is really is really fun. And then Jackson, kind of on the other hand, is, is a little more laid back, a little more loose. Um, so it's important, I guess, to have that balance between – being really aggressive and locked in, but also relaxing and having fun um, because obviously when we're relaxing and not pressing, I think that's when we're at our best. And then me and Daniel are similar in the, in the aspect that we're, we're thinkers on the mound. And we like to, I don't know, visualize different sequences that we're going to throw to hitters or um, talk about game plans before beforehand and talk about where we're attacking guys in the zone or whatnot. So I, it's, it's great to be able to bounce that type of conversation back and forth between a guy like that uh, because we're on the same page in terms of how we prepare and how we go out and, and execute. And, and picking up on something else you, you mentioned, there's all, all of you guys have college experience. Obviously that helps, but not only just college experience, but big game experience. And that's in, continued for you going into the pros. You pitched in the futures game last year. You pitched in two postseason games for Wilmington. What is your approach to a, a big game, no matter what the venue is, whether it's playing, you know, in, in Cleveland, which you could play in someday as a Kansas city pitcher or, or you know, in, in a Carolina league postseason game, how do you approach a big game? See, for me, I've always I've always loved to embrace that big game atmosphere. I always love going on the road or just having a high stakes situation kind of fall on me um, because I, I prepare. I feel like I prepare pretty well. So when it comes to that moment, I feel like I'm going to succeed more often than not. Um, and that's just having the confidence in myself based on how I prepare and how I've gone about my business the, the previous weeks or whatnot. Um, but, yeah, obviously pitching in Cleveland was a pretty surreal moment. Um, that was only, I think the second time I've ever pitched in a big league stadium and, um, never in front of that many people. I think there were probably stands were almost full. Um, but yeah, coming into that situation, um, was really, obviously the game kind of speeds up on you a little bit in situations like that. Um, but it's important, obviously I was able to just take a step back and, um, take a breath and kind of just take in my surroundings, um, and then go right after and attack the hitters I was facing. But. Um, to answer your question, yeah, I love, I love embracing that big game atmosphere and kind of um, taking the lead in terms of setting the tone in a, in a game, in a big game, and, and really riding the momentum from there. And not to hone in on one game too much, but uh, that Futures game experience for you last year was incredible to watch just because they brought you in. The bases were loaded. Just a, a, hey, kid, here you go. Your first time pitching in an all-star game like this, and you got to deal with that. You face Dylan Carlson, Dalton Varsho. You strike out Dalton Varsho, which was a great at-bat. And then you caught Taylor Trammell trying to steal home. What was your thought process when you just saw out of the corner of your eye this guy coming blazing down from third base? And do you think he was out or safe now that we're so far out from this? <laughs> Do you, yeah, so, do you think he was out yeah. or safe? 
so definitely an interesting scenario, obviously. So kind of backtracking a little bit, like before the game and whatnot, obviously I think they, they reduced the game to seven innings and we had 10 pitchers on the staff. So obviously there were seven guys that had their own innings and there were three of us that were kind of mop-up guys or, or kind of extras, if you will. Um, so I was one of those guys. So I was just kind of trying to stay ready the whole time. And obviously being a starter, um, it's a little different coming out of the bullpen. And you're just sitting there for an hour or two just trying to stay loose. Um, so for me, between getting the call from the dugout to tell me I was going in, I probably had about three or four minutes to get ready. <laughs> and as a starter, I like to take my time and kind of feel myself kind of getting going. But I literally had about seven or eight pitches just to kind of just chuck it and let it loose. And then I was jogging in from right center um, to, like you said, a bases loaded situation and obviously facing Dylan Carlson. I know he singled off me. And then that kind of calmed me down, brought me back to earth a little bit. Um, and then the next uh, Varsha, facing Varsha, I just tried to execute. And um, obviously it's an all-star game, so you're trying to showcase your abilities a little bit and um, let it let it loose. Um, I was able to strike him out. And then, yeah, I remember Gavin Lux was at the plate and then Tremel at third. Um, I threw, a, I think, a bad curveball to Lux first pitch and then, Next thing you know, I'm coming set. Obviously, my, my back is the third base, so um, I couldn't physically see him because, I, I mean, I'm facing Gavin Lux. I'm just trying to throw the best pitch I can to him to try to get him out and get us out of the inning. Um, but then I just – all of a sudden, I kind of heard the crowd kind of get a little bit louder, and some people started to stand a little bit. And I was like, what's going on? And so I just, I just kind of stepped off, and um, it was just a, kind of a gut reaction to just – firing up looking back on it, it was actually a pretty good throw that I made and I was kind of surprised because anybody who's played catch with me knows I, I kind of struggle with shorter throws like that but I think just having the, the spur of the moment just to throw it and and got it in there um really helped but if, in terms of him being out or safe um I'm glad there's there's not replay because <laughs> I, I, I'm sure um, if they took a look at that in the booth or whatever, he probably got his hand in there. Um, but I'm just glad I made it close enough um, with the throw and with the tag that from the naked eye, it looked like he could have been out. But like I said, I'm glad there's no replay, and we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, now it isn't out at that point. I think he, the record shows it in, as an out, so we're going to keep it that way. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> Chris, uh, Sam asking about the the Futures game. I'll go to one of your other big moments of last year uh, in the Carolina League playoffs, and there's two of them. And I had kind of forgotten this, but the Carolina League playoffs last year, every series, I mean, it's only two semifinal series in the finals, but all of them went the distance, went five games. Um, mm-hmm. You pitched game three in both your team's uh, semifinal and final series. And in game three of the semifinal series for Wilmington against Salem, you effectively saved the season. That's a, a series in which you guys are down two games uh, after the the first two against the Red, the Red Sox. Then all of a sudden, you get that nod in game three and go out and throw a gem. Uh, I think you struck out 11, didn't walk anybody over seven innings. Um, and you guys rally for three straight wins to make it into the finals. When you get there, back and forth, back and forth, and you end up winning that in game five. So kind of a two-part question. To to be able to get the ball in such pivotal games in game three, what was that like for you as a competitor? And And second part of that, how difficult is it as a competitor to then have to watch game four and game five and know that there's kind of nothing you can do about it and you've just got to ag your way through it as a fan yeah um so kind of going back to what we just talked about i love 
kind of that big game atmosphere where obviously our backs were against the wall there, losing the first two. And we kind of got blitzed out of the gate by, by Salem. They were hitting the ball pretty well um, the first two games. So I just wanted to come in and, and do my job to keep us in the game. I think we only won like two to one or something. And um, I know only gave up one run, but it was, I think it was like one, one until pretty late in the game. So it was still anybody's game at that point. But um, what a lot of people don't realize too, is we played, we played the first two games in Salem, obviously that's in Virginia. And then we had to drive back to Delaware that night and play that next night. So we didn't get any time off really. I, my sleep for that night was basically on the bus. Um, and I slept as best as I could, obviously on a moving bus in the middle of the night. But um, like I said, I just wanted to give us the best chance to win. And then um, luckily we did win the game. And then games four and five, like you said, just sitting in the dugout, it's just my job obviously is just to, to turn into a support system for our pitchers and our hitters, um, just kind of be there and let them know if I see anything that I notice watching from the dugout. Um, yeah, it's definitely tough kind of sitting there and knowing that um, essentially the, the result of the game is out of your control. Um, but I know we had pretty reliable guys on the mound um, coming after me. I think it was Austin Cox and then Rito Lugo, who they both stepped up huge in those situations and, and uh, kind of the same situation obviously happened in uh, the championship series against Fayetteville. Um, they both went four and five and well, and as well, and and obviously we we took it from there. So it was really fun to kind of sit back and watch them. You guys get back to back shutouts to close the finals, uh, and to celebrate in Game Five. Um, and to, you know, at the end of a minor league season, the playoffs are such a, a different atmosphere in terms of, you know, kids are back in school, so the crowds uh, in some places are down, and, you know, guys are at the end of a long season, and there's a lot of exhaustion and adrenaline to play into it. When you get that final out in game five, and you guys get to celebrate, what was that moment like for you? Oof, uh, big relief, uh, because obviously every – the story kind of in Wilmington the whole year was close ball games. I think there was some type of ridiculous stat that we had in, in one run games the whole year. Um, so that was kind of obviously amplified in the playoffs where the stakes are a little bit bigger and the, the every pitch means so much more. Um, so kind of just on the edge of our seats in the dugout or on the edge of the, the, the rail that we're leaning on. But um, yeah, obviously great to, to take it on the road too. obviously in, a, in an opposing park. Obviously Fayetteville had a really good team. Um, and it was just awesome to that's that's obviously what you play for. Um, it's a really long season, but then you kind of get a second win come September and come the playoffs, um, where you kind of just sprint to the finish line and you give everything that you have um, because you obviously you know the off season's coming up, so that's the time you get to rest. So for that whatever two week period of the playoffs, you give all that you have, and um, luckily our our best was better than their best, so. Um, it was really great to celebrate after and uh, definitely an experience I won't forget. And, you know, that's speaking of the team side. On on the individual side, as I talked about before, you, you ended up leading the minor leagues in strikeouts. And you mentioned earlier in our talk as well that you love analytics, you like looking at numbers. Uh, so were you following the, the minor league strikeout race? I mean, it's it's not quite the home run race that some people follow. And I know minor leagues wide numbers aren't always available to folks, but how much were you aware of chasing that top spot as your first pro season went along? I think come the, the second half of the season, 
like late July, August, I was kind of aware of it. Um, but when I went out there, I didn't really think about it. Um, kind of the way I pitch, um, when I get the two strikes, that's for, if I'm ahead in the count, and I get the two strikes, that's kind of like kill mode for me. Like I'm, I'm trying to strike you out once I get the two strikes. Um, so I think that's, that's kind of where the strikeouts, I guess, come from. Uh, but in terms to answer your question, I think if I thought about that too much, I think that would have taken away from my game a little bit. And, um, I would have been focusing on trying to strike everybody out every pitch rather than, um, being able to pitch deep into games, because that's something I've really never had success doing. I've always had high pitch counts in games that I pitch in, not necessarily because I walk a lot of guys, but because I can never finish guys, have deep counts and a lot of foul balls. So I think having that aggressive mentality that I kind of took on with two strikes kind of changed my ability to, to pitch deeper into games. And then obviously if you pitch deeper into games and have more innings, chances are you'll have more, more strikeouts. So I think that's kind of where that came from. But um, I was aware of it. Um, but like I said, I didn't want to pay too much attention to it and take away from what I was doing out there. Fair enough. And one of the reasons why you were able to get that many strikeouts is your changeup. Uh, I feel like we talk to so many pitchers and they say the changeup is the last thing to come along. For you, as you talked about before, during at Stanford, you were basically a two-pitch pitcher with your fastball and your changeup. Uh, what went into the development of that pitch? What makes that such a good pitch for you right now that you could uh, get so many swings and misses with it uh, right away to begin your pro career? Yeah, a couple things. Um, I was I learned the changeup when I was I think probably thirteen, twelve or thirteen. It was right after like little league, and uh, one of my coaches just showed me a four seam circle, and I kind of just took off and ran with it. And obviously having a four seam fastball and a four seam changeup, uh, the spin on the the pitches looks pretty identical. Um, I've, I've had hitters tell me that the toughest thing is to see the spin. It's not necessarily the movement of the pitch but it's more the spin and then the, the, the separation of velocity. Um, Cause usually my fastball is around 90 or in the low nineties or whatever. And then my changeups varies a little bit. I could take a lot off and throw it in the mid to high seventies if I had to, or throw it in the low eighties. So I think it's, um, I've become really comfortable and be able to manipulate that pitch a little bit um, when I need to. But I think the two biggest factors are, the separation of velocity and then the spin of it itself. But I think the one of the reasons the guys struggle with the changeup um, or maybe it's the last to come, I think it's because in your mind, like you're always telling yourself to slow down and you're throwing a changeup. But in reality, you obviously have to keep the same arm speed that you do with your fastball and, and make it look as much as your fast, as much like your fastball as you can. Um, and then that's where the deception and the, the swing and miss or the weak contacts going to come from. So I think it's just something I learned from a young age. Cool. And, uh, yeah, we'll end on this one, Chris. We've been asking everybody this because there is no minor league baseball right now. We don't know quite when it's coming back. Hopefully it's it's soon in, in some form. But uh, through your now two years in pro ball, uh, we've talked a lot about memories in terms of Wilmington winning a championship, futures game, what have you. But what would you call your favorite minor league moment up to this point? Oh, Favorite minor league moment. Um, couple things. I'd say I, I'll pick two. Obviously, one is the Futures game. Um, obviously, when the season starts, I had 
I really had no expectation. and That wasn't even in my mind, mind that I was even going to have a chance to go to something like that. Um, so when I did, obviously it's a pretty surreal moment to be surrounded by guys that were the top prospects and in the game and names that you're hearing every day and guys that are going to be on big league rosters pretty soon, or if not already. Um, and then obviously getting to enjoy the fanfare of kind of an all-star weekend and see what it's like. That was just a really cool experience. And then the kind of the moment I had in, it was in August um, when I had the back-to-back complete games, um, as I mentioned, I, I, I've always struggled pitching deep into games because I've had high pitch counts. I was the king of five innings, a hundred pitches in, in college, just probably because I had two pitches and people would just foul them off and I get in deep counts. Um, but being able to prove to myself that I could do that, um, let alone throw back-to-back complete games, which to this day, I, I really don't know like how I did that. Um, I think I just had everything working those, those two back-to-back outings. Um, but that's something I'll always kind of go back on. And if I'm having, I don't know, a tough time on the mound or I feel myself like out of sync, then I can always go back to those outings and kind of watch the video from that and, and see when I'm at my best. So, Chris Bubich is the sixth-ranked prospect in the Kansas City Royals organization and coming off of a fantastic first full season uh, at a couple of Class A levels last year. And, um, Chris, we, we can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and uh, stay safe and stay healthy, and uh, hopefully we'll see you back on the mound here real soon. For sure, guys. Thank you for having me on, and stay safe as well. wonder what it takes to become a top minor league baseball prospect now is your chance to see the behind the scenes stories about some of milb's brightest stars including jared kalanick bobby wood jr julio rodriguez cj abrams and adley rutschman throughout the year be sure to follow their journeys at milb.com slash road to the show to see what it takes to make it to the show we are just now starting our recording of our uh, interview this week with benjamin hill we've already been talking for like 25 minutes so you all missed out on the director's cut Maybe we'll drop it on DVD someday. Hi, Ben. Hey, Tyler. Hey, Sam. And, uh, yeah, when the uh, Show Before the Show podcast DVD uh, set comes out, uh, that, that will definitely be on the extras. It might be an Easter egg. You have to look a little scenes. hard to find yeah, it. Yeah, that could be. We can, we can make it that way. It'll be uh, it's like an Inside the Actors studio. They'll, they'll dive deep into our uh, the unreleased tapes of the show before the show podcast. We get very uh, – we're very philosophical. It's, uh, it's fantastic. Someday we'll – We'll start a philosophy podcast as well alongside this one, and that one will get no listens. Um, let's dive into this week's conversation <laughs> with Ben. Uh, we got some some great stuff that is up on the site and is coming to the site um, from Ben. One story that is already up that you can find right now, the uh, fun facts about each minor league circuit, each league. Uh, the latest edition of that is the Eastern League, and so many good things in this one. Uh, Twelve teams, of course, in the Eastern League, some of them with the some of the longest histories in minor league baseball and also some of the newest teams in minor league baseball um ben give us the the lowdown on the el fun facts yeah i mean that is a, a venerable league and i'm trying to you know this is the third one i've done you know did the pacific coast league and the international league and now a eastern league and i'm trying to lead off all of these stories with just kind of like a, a league-wide fun fact that is somehow related to the absurdity of the league itself. Like the International League is no longer national. You know, the Pacific Coast League has teams in three time zones. And the Eastern League, start, there's are Eastern Leagues that go back to 1884, but that's not today's Eastern League. 
today's Eastern League started as the New York-Pennsylvania League, which is, of course, not today's New York-Penn League, and so on and so forth. And it's the Eastern League, but one of the divisions is the Western Division. And yes, there are degrees of Eastern, but I find it amusing that you could be in the Eastern League playing in the Western Division. <laughs> Seems kind of paradoxical. I just like these kind of nonsensical things. Anyhow, yeah, I had fun with it. A dozen teams. Um, you know, and it's just kind of totally random how I find these facts, and some I just kind of have ingrained in my head, and and some uh, you know I have to do a little research. You know, Bowie Bay Sox. I knew this, but I'd forgotten. You know, their their home of Prince George's Stadium wasn't ready in their inaugural season of 1993. And meanwhile, their parent Baltimore Orioles had recently moved to Camden Yards. So the 1993 Bowie Bay Sox played at the Orioles' former home of Memorial Stadium in 1993. And uh, just to think about how surreal that must have been, a double-A team's inaugural season taking place in like a, what, 50,000-capacity former major league ballpark in baltimore proper a former nfl uh, you know, stadium too i think the capacity might have been even more because i that i believe yeah. is the stadium that hosted the baltimore colts yeah yeah exactly so it could have even been even more than that i would i'm sure they had you know huge swaths of seating you know completely blocked off but you know that'd be a fun uh season to to, to explore or research you know like just kind of how the team operated what their biggest crowd was yeah. I mean, I, I I imagine that there were games that season where you probably had, you know, low three digits, you know, watching a game in this cavernous stadium, which just sounds a pretty cool thing to think about it. And then in 94, the season, the, the ballpark still wasn't open when the season began. So they played at like, I think, University of Maryland, the U.S. Naval Academy, uh, the Frederick Keys Field of Harry Grove Stadium. So even though technically really the Bay Sox have only played in one ballpark, you know, for the entirety of their, their history, Prince George's stadium, they actually played in four different stadiums as a home field before that one opened. So what an odyssey. Yeah. I mean, not to harp too much on Bowie, but one of the questions I wanted to ask is this last line of the Bowie blurb you write, which is that Prince George's stadium, the dimensions there are the same as those at Memorial Stadium. Obviously, the O's don't use Memorial Stadium anymore, but can you think of any other parks like that now in minor league baseball where they use almost the exact same dimensions? I know Portland has you know the, the main monster, and Greenville has a, has a green monster as well, but this isn't something we typically see. I think in newer ballparks here, it, it's fairly common that they'll they'll do the dimensions uh, in tandem, or even sometimes like the style of the outfield fences. You know, if there's little quirks in the big league park, they'll do it in the minor league park. I want to say uh, Augusta SRP Park that opened in 2018. Pretty sure that has some quirky uh, dimensions that model uh, AT and T or whatever the ballpark is currently called in, in uh, San Francisco, who are the uh, the giants of the parent, or Augusta's parent. Um, so I think that one, I mean, I remember literally my first ever minor league experience um, was Scranton Wilkes-Barre Red Barons. And uh, that ballpark, which has since been essentially torn down and built on the same site, uh, Lackawanna, it was called Lackawanna County Stadium when I was a kid. That was a mini veteran stadium with an artificial turf and the same dimensions and, and everything. Huh. Uh, you know, the, they were a Phillies AAA affiliate at the time. As for why Bowie had Memorial Stadium dimensions, that's a good question because that was no longer where the Orioles played. 
So it's like, you know, you could understand maybe if they did it because they won the model, the new ballpark, Camden Yards. I'm not sure why they did uh, the Memorial Stadium dimensions. I did not know that until just this week when I was writing the story and Bowie uh, Bay Sox Twitter uh, gave me that little factoid on top of everything else. And I was like, huh. But I did not follow up on it. So, uh, yeah, we really went down this Bowie, Bowie Bay Sox rabbit hole here. It's, this is a fascinating thing that I did not know about at all. And there's actually a story from a couple of years ago. The Baltimore Sun did a, a look back at this. And they've got a, a picture leading off the story of Mike Mussina, then with the Orioles, uh, on a rehab stint with A Bowie pitching at <laughs> Memorial Stadium, a place where the Orioles used to play. How strange. Um some other really good stuff that is uh, that is coming to the site. We talked over the last few weeks about teams that have been doing stuff like selling their concessions items uh, for curbside pickup and that type of stuff. Teams are also now, as uh, various states and localities across the country um, try to come back and open things for business, there are uh, ballparks around the minor leagues that are starting to host their own events um, with movie nights and all that type of stuff. I know uh, Rocky Mountain just today announced that they'll be doing uh, movie nights where fans can drop by and watch a movie up on the big screen from the field and stay safely socially distanced and all that what else is in this vein yeah you know i've one of my go-to sayings just throughout my whole career has been you know minor league baseball is a reflection of america and uh you know i think that holds up and you know exploring america through minor league baseball and right now we're in very strange times in america and i think we're finding you know minor league teams kind of mirroring american society at large at first it was like what can we do to bring ourselves into your home that just be strictly online and things like that? And then it was like, well, we can do concessions curbside and have people come to the ballpark, but, you know, contactless and not bring them in at all. And now uh, all 50 states are in some form of reopening. Obviously, it is. It differs greatly from state to state. And so now we're seeing these first tentative steps, you know, in the nation at large and in minor league baseball. So, yeah, Tyler, like you mentioned, movie nights, uh, Daytona Tortugas, you know, have divided their playing field into 10 by 10, like family spaces. And they're selling these 10 by 10, 10 foot by 10 foot family blocks, Um, you know, so you can come to the ballpark and go onto the field and watch a movie in a socially distant setting. Um, You know, the Pensacola Blue Wahoos, Bubba Watson is a co-op owner and he designed a nine-hole disc golf course that you can play on the playing field you know that's a that's a really creative one uh just today you know we're speaking here on wednesday uh the cedar rapids colonels had a noon game scheduled you know on their uh, uh you know their normal 2020 schedule if, if anything about this season had been normal they were going to play a noon game today so instead they played a no game noon game but they actually let people into the stadium maximum 150 you know very uh, socially distanced but they played a classic game on the uh video board and uh, had concessions open so you could have actually come to the ballpark today at the same time in which a game was scheduled in cedar rapids and uh at the very least, you know, take in a little of that baseball feeling and energy. It sounds kind of surreal to go to a ballpark with 150 people tops and not be really near anyone and watch a game on a screen, but, you know, baby steps. And uh, I think we're going to see more and more of this kind of thing. You know, Omaha Storm Chasers um, are renting the playing field for $100 an hour uh, with, uh, for groups of 10 or less. So you could bring, you know, maybe a youth team or like a kid's party 
and uh, have a triple A baseball field uh, to play on for an hour for a hundred bucks. Um, you know, we're just going to see these creative uses um, as time goes by. Uh, Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs doing character cruise throughs. You know, we're in the parking lot. They have superheroes and princesses and team mascots, and people are just driving by and waving and that kind of thing. So it's kind of fun to see all this creativity, and we're going to see a lot more of it because we do not see the return of actual minor league baseball for uh, for who knows when, but it'll be a little while still. And uh, to pivot to you know something that's also seriously going on this week, um, as many people have heard, there have been some serious floods in, in Midland, Michigan. Uh, and as many of you might know, is that Midland, Michigan is the home of the Great Lakes Loons. Uh, ben, you you've been to to Dow Diamond and to visit Great Lakes, and uh, you know at this time when it doesn't sound like the ballpark's affected right now, but obviously tons in that community are. What are your memories of going to see the Loons and going to see that Midland area? You know, it's been a number of years, so it's not too fresh in my mind. But I think it was 2013 when I visited uh, the Loons and Dow Diamond in Midland. But it's a really unique town. Um, you know, Dow Chemical obviously has a huge presence there, so there's a lot of company but you know they're a huge employer and there's a lot of company money too and uh i remember just you know museums and theaters and cultural institutions you know were of a quality uh you know kind of way beyond that you expect of a town of that size and a really beautiful scenic town uh seemed kind of pretty progressive and uh a lot of community involvement civic pride um it was a kind of place that like a lot of my travels that I, once I went there, I was like, huh, I had no idea what this town was all about. And, um, it had a really good, good time there. And it's, uh, yeah, it's obviously really sad to see what is happening there today. And, you know, our thoughts, everyone in the minor league community is, you know, wishing Midland the best as they deal with this flooding, which is awful. It's a really cool town. Um, I was looking at one of my posts from Midland, and in downtown Midland, one of the most recognizable landmarks, and I had completely forgotten about this, is something called the Tridge. And it's a three-way bridge that's uh, called a Tridge, like a tri-bridge, I guess. Huh. And it's built at the confluence of two rivers, the Kitabawasi and Chippewa. And uh, there's the Tridge. So there's three different entryways onto this bridge. And uh, I'd never heard of the Tridge before, but uh, Midland... Um, I, I really hope to make it back there and see a, see a Loons game at some point in the future and, uh, you know, wishing them the best. Benjamin Hill, you can find on Twitter at Ben's Biz. The stories are uh, up on the site right now as well. And, uh, Ben, thanks for all the time, man. We'll, uh, we'll do it again next week. Yeah, man, anytime. I'm here uh, today and uh, every day. Same. 24 hours a day. Same. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, guys. Our MILB.com writer spotlight of the week this week finds Jordan Wolf, who's got a, a great story up on the site right now about somebody who uh, I would imagine the vast majority of you have not heard of. I had not heard of, and it is a fascinating piece uh, that's up on the site. Jordan, what's going on? How are you? Hey, what's going on? Yeah, I, I hadn't heard much about this guy either. <laughs> it's This is a cool story. We're doing this Monsters of the Minor series uh, where we revisit some careers of uh, players in minor league history that people probably are unaware of. And your assignment for this week was Elliot Bigelow, who is a guy who in the 1920s was a phenom uh, and I've never heard of. And he's got a really fascinating uh, career arc and trajectory, but that led to very little big league time, which is kind of one of those classically old-timey minor league stories. Tell us about Elliot Bigelow. 
Yeah. So, uh, yeah, like you say, it's a really fascinating story. He, um, he was maybe if you look just at the stats, kind of one of the best hitters really in minor league history, at least in terms of, you know, back then kind of the dead ball era. Um, but yeah, like you said, he only played one year in the big leagues. So that's kind of what made me want to, you know, pursue the story as soon as I saw that. I was like, this doesn't make any sense. Why was this not a better deal? But once I kind of got to learn more of the story, I really kind of start to understand why that was the case. And it really did kind of, you know, just fascinate me, the whole thing. He starts off as a pitcher, very promising young pitching prospect, uh, and then sustains an arm injury and really never recovers as a pitcher and turns into this offensive juggernaut. Um, give us the, mm-hmm. the early progression of his career, of how this all got started. Obviously, it was kind of, uh, you know, the world got thrown into a, a whole different mixer with World War One and the, the Spanish flu pa- pandemic and all of that. He didn't get to debut as a professional until after that, but give us the, the early stages of his, his baseball life. Yeah, so um, he grew up in Florida. Um, he was from a very young age, I think his early teenage years. He was kind of one of the best guys, you know, in the, I don't know if they had a little league back then, I guess, but he was one of the best players in the area. Uh, two-way, he could pitch, he could hit, he was great at both. And um, according to some stuff I saw, he was actually supposed to be a better pitcher than he was a hitter um, professionally. And something I saw said that he was destined to, as soon as he turned 18, as soon as he finished school, he was going to sign on to be a pro. But um, like you said, the war happened, but on a bigger scale, he, um, he was a pitcher. And of course this was back when everybody pitched nine innings, like every single day, which is (laughs) already not very conducive to, you know, maintaining arm health. But one day he was pitching, he had pitched a lot of innings and it was raining. And I don't know what specifically, I don't even know if he knew what specifically, because they didn't exactly have doctors that could, you know, look inside your arm and see what you tore or what, but he threw out his arm while pitching and he just never recovered as a pitcher, but that also kind of hurt him as a hitter because while he could swing the bat, he was an outfielder who was already slow. So the fact that he had a terrible throwing arm after that really just kind of limited his potential. And I think, I mean, he obviously had a lot of success in the minors. He played 12 seasons, but I think he that injury kind of just capped his ceiling very early on because he, you know, he was putting up big numbers. He was, you know, really impressing a lot of people. But even that injury very early on just kind of, you know, really capped his potential. Yeah, it's kind of interesting reading this piece now because if this was were a prospect we were talking about, uh, it seemed like he played right field, which if there's a guy with an arm problem, you wouldn't put him in right field now, but the 20s <laughs> right. were a different time. But not only that, if, if somebody hit like he did, and he was a career 349 hitter in the minors with a 532 slugging percentage, I mean, that's – if 532 slugging percentage is good in any era, never mind the dead ball era, you would probably just stick right. him at first base – uh, in your research, did it come up at all why they kept sending him to the outfield if his arm was a problem? No, it didn't. It's actually funny. I was telling my friend about the story. I was explaining it to him, and his first reaction was the same. He's, well, why didn't he just play first base? Um, you know, I don't know. It might be a thing like in Moneyball with Shane Hatterberg about how it, they said, hey, can't it's you try to convert hard. to play first base? And Right, exactly. <laughs> it might have been something like that. might have just been you know, stubbornness. Maybe he didn't want to learn a new position, but um, whatever it was, uh, I think it really was just his defensive struggles. That really was like the, the real, what really plagued his career. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like if we could go back in time and say, Hey, play this guy at first base, maybe we'd be having a different conversation. Maybe he would have played a few years in the show, but I don't know. 
One of my uh, my favorite moments in this story is uh, a perfectly 1920s quote from the Washington Evening Star. So 1928, Elliot Bigelow, uh, in one of his best seasons, gets signed uh, following that season, his age 30 season, uh, by the Washington Senators. And in that 1928 season, uh, he goes out and playing for Birmingham, plays in 134 games, hits 395, slugs 554. And there is a quote from a writer, John B. Keller of the Washington Evening Star, September 24th, 1928, in which he says, <laughs> quote, Bibolo, he spells the dude's name wrong to start the quote, <laughs> Bibolo is too slow and too weak a fly catcher to be regarded as big league outfield timber, but he can suck the ball. It's something out of a Conan O'Brien sketch, and I love it. Um, but that's that's what's so interesting is like, and we've seen this before. Buzz Arlett was a, a guy we talked about in this Monsters in the Minor series as well, uh, who mm-hmm. ran into a lot of that similar um, the knocking of his skills and his accomplishments. What was it about, um, at least in Bigelow, not Bibelow's case, that made it seem like he was so quickly um, disregarded as being somebody who could be successful at the major league level? Yeah, that was kind of confusing, or not confusing, well, confusing why that was the case for me too, because uh, I dug up a lot of like old newspaper clippings in which they were like, especially when he was first started with Washington, but also in the Red Sox, it kind of seemed as if he had this reputation of kind of everybody around baseball knew, oh, yeah, this guy can hit, but he is not that good. And he actually had a couple chances to make it to the bigs before he ended up making it with Washington. He, uh, There was one year, I think it was, I think it was his last season in Chattanooga, if I'm right, where he was getting looked at by a lot of scouts, including the Phillies and the Pirates, who were the ones I think that took him the most seriously. And I think he re-injured his arm, which is just absolutely cruel and absolutely yeah. just terrible that that happened again. Because he, I mean, there's a quote I didn't end up using, but someone uh, called him one of uh, misfortune's children, oh. which I really tried to figure in there. I tried to put that in there, but I thought that might be too negative. But he really just could never catch a break. And I think everybody, I think by the time he made it up, it was kind of just uh you know, all right, fine, let's let's give this guy a shot. He's been battling. His numbers are still good. But I don't know. I mean, it, it, it really was confusing to me why it took so long for him to, you know, make it up and why nobody gave him a shot before that. And, and just to kind of put your amateur scout hat on for a second, um, <laughs> you know, or looking back at, at the numbers, because I, I don't think there's video of him. We can't exactly find it, what was wrong with his swing or what was wrong with his arm that it didn't work with the Red Sox. But if you were to look at, at his numbers with Boston in, in 1929, t- hitting 284, OBP of 357, his OPS plus was 91, which is obviously below average, but still decent. Uh, if mm-hmm. he existed in the modern game and let's say we stick him at, at first base, do you think he has a longer career now than he did then? Majorly. Oh career, yeah, definitely. Is. Yeah, no, I was, I was surprised that he didn't, make it uh past that one year in the big leagues because like you said he hit 284 that was the fifth best uh mark on the team and the red sox were terrible back then too so i don't know what kind of all-star they replaced him with but he yeah i mean i feel like if you're that good of a hitter there's a place for you and it's funny josh uh josh jackson tweeted my story out a little while ago and he mentioned something about dh lovers and he kind of seems like literally the perfect designated hitter yeah. so he kind of kind of was unfortunate for him in that regard too because if he played today you know he might have had a legit 
10-year career just as a guy who could just mash the ball. Mm. No, that's a good point. And especially now to bring that up when the AL and the NL might be using the DH this year. That would have been fascinating. A man of a different era. But uh, we'll end on this one, Jordan. When we were talking before we went live here, uh, you said there was something you wanted to figure into the story. You couldn't find find a spot for it. So what what, what was that thing that now you can kind of bring about about Elliot Bigelow? Yeah, that is um, that was on his Saber Society for American Baseball Research. It was on his bio page. I found this, and I couldn't just find a way to when, within the flow of the story to include it. But I guess back then it was kind of common for local business owners, at least in like Chattanooga. This is when he was at Chattanooga, um, to offer players like prizes for things like the first homer of the year and the first double of the year because doubles were a bigger deal back then. What and this uh, it, it racks up everything that he got, and I'm going to read it. He over his over two years in Chattanooga, he won a new suit of clothes from the Palmer Clothing Company, a $100 share in a building lot in Tennessee, and $100 obviously is a lot of money now. Um, several several cartons of cigarettes <laughs> from multiple people, several cigars as well. Um, and the one that I liked the most was a three-pound box of Whitman's candy from Swift's ah, drugstore. Delightful. Right. So, right. And so, you know, he wasn't making a ton of money. He was making like a thousand dollars or whatever. But he got all this, all these benefits. So, you know, I, I was kind of starting to wonder maybe it wasn't so bad at all, or after all, that he played in the minors for <laughs> so long. <laughs> the bonuses line, were just different of, then. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. I imagine nowadays there's not people aren't negotiating over how many cigarettes you get when you're signing a contract for the first time. If you uh, don't read the story because uh, you know Elliot Bigelow already, you should go read the story just for the classic ragtime speech inside of it from all of the various media outlets, such as clouted minor league pitching with abandon uh, and a demon minor league hitter. Um there is nothing that makes me feel more inadequate as a sports writer than like 1920 sports writing. It is incredible. Uh, and this story is fantastic. It's up on the site right now. You can find Jordan on Twitter. He's at by Jordan Wolf. And uh, Jordan, this is great, man. Thanks so much for coming on with us. Yeah, of course, man. Thanks for that. And thanks for having me on. We are living in some weird times, of course, and uh, as we've been reminding you for the last several weeks, Minor League Baseball and Feeding America have teamed up to raise funds for local food banks and to honor those risking their lives on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic. For every $10 donated to Feeding America, a Minor League Baseball team will donate one ticket to a local hero. Join us in making a difference in our local communities by visiting MILB.com forward slash community first to donate today. Final segment of this week's episode... Big thanks to Chris Bubich. Big thanks to Benjamin Hill. Big thanks to Jordan Wolf uh, for joining us. Sam has this week's nationwide prospect fun fact. Yeah. So uh, anybody who's been following this, the site the last couple of weeks, and I hope you have been because we are constantly updating it with new features and new stories and new previews of what could potentially come for baseball down the line. Uh, but what Toolshed has been doing the last couple Tuesdays is doing draft retrospectives. The The draft is coming back in June. The date hasn't changed. I know there are some rumors about it essentially moving to July. They've decided to keep the date. It's moving to uh, the first five rounds now. It, it's only going to be five rounds, which we talked about that last week about the re repercussions for that. And I'm sure we'll talk about it more when June 10th rolls around. But for now, uh, 
we've been doing retrospectives on old drafts to look at how they've aged, what major storylines have changed, which late picks have become major prospects or in some cases major leaguers, uh, things of that nature. So this last week was the 2016 draft. And looking back at it, who I thought was an early round steal was Shane Bieber of the Cleveland Indians uh, organization. Now we know him as potentially the Indians' ace. They traded away Trevor Bauer. Mike Clevenger has some injury issues. If the season were to begin when it normally would have, Shane Bieber probably would have been their opening day starter coming out a season in which he was worth 5.6 war and was a little bit of an AL Cy Young contender. Um, But looking back at this, you know, thinking what Shane Bieber was coming out of UC Santa Barbara, he was seen as somebody who could fill up the strike zone, but didn't really have the stuff, didn't have the velocity. We know that's different now. He's added a little bit of velocity. He was throwing around 89, 90, 91 when he came in. Now he's averaging somewhere you know, closer to the mid-90s. His fastball last year was 93.1. He's able to hit a little bit higher. The fun fact I want to bring to you guys to here today, though, for this 2016 fourth-round pick, guy went 122nd overall, is that if we look at the second half of the last decade, so 2015 to 2019, we'll say. We'll kind of round up there. But 2015 to 2019, Shane Bieber led all minor league qualified pitchers in strikeouts per walks. He averaged 13.7 strikeouts per walks. The guy, His walk per, per nine was 0.6. Uh, this is somebody who consistently filled up the zone, was never quite a top prospect until he got to the upper levels and continued to repeat that control. Uh, and like I said, when the velocity went up a little bit. But he, his story is one that I constantly come back to now in terms of, you know, there are certain things about this game that you can't teach. A lot of times it's the guys who can hit 100 on the gun but have control issues that become the top picks because you, you think you can teach throwing in the strike zone. Sometimes you can't teach that what you can add now is and it's becoming easier and easier is to add velocity we've seen this tons of times guys who come in throwing 87 you know within a few years time or are throwing 95 consistently it's kind of the way the game is going shane bieber is one of those success stories if you find somebody who is elite at filling up the zone uh I would continue to ride them, you know, see what they can do at the at the upper levels. Shane Bieber is a pretty good success story at that. And, uh, you know, when you're looking at fourth round picks and thinking, oh, he doesn't have the stuff, but he is really, really good at this one thing. Well, the stuff can improve. And, and that's something we saw out of Shane Bieber before he made his major league debut in 2018 and turned into one of the American League's best pitchers in 2019. So that's this week's nationwide prospect fun fact. If you're looking at 2015 to 2019, Shane Bieber led all qualified minor league pitchers and strikeouts for walks at 13.7 the next closest was chris paddock at 11.5 not even close pretty amazing stuff and uh with that we will bid you for a farewell for this week's episode of the show before the show he's sam i'm tyler we'll talk to you next week